Hello, welcome back, my partners in crime. Welcome back to Murder Analyzed. And let's have a chat about Murder Podcast because these go on there as well, plus others. So if you haven't checked it out, please have a look at that and have a listen. It's really, really good. Now, today's case, I'm going to put a warning out with it because really, I think it's a disturbing case. It really is a disturbing case. This is a sort of three-in-one case, and it has to be three-in-one because it's about two children that were murdered but also about another victim that escaped, and that's how this person was caught. So this is the case today of Louise Bell and Michael Black, plus the other unnamed child that escaped, and that's how this person was caught. This is, it's, it's an eye-opening case, I think, when you think about um, what was really going on. Now, this case comes from Adelaide in Australia, and I think it's the last one in the series on Australia for now, um, this case, but it's a really interesting case. But also, when we look at this predator and what he was like as a predator, and as I say, these are the murders and the um, abduction and everything that he's been arrested for and is now in prison for, for the rest of his life. But it is highly thought that really this man has done many, many more and unfortunately, these children's bodies have never been found. So there isn't closure for these families. They sort of know what happened, but they can't put their children to rest. It's really, really upsetting, I think, in, in that context of it, this case. So listen, this is the Louise Bell, Michael Black, and the other unnamed child case. So on the 5th of January 1983, 10-year-old Louise Bell was kidnapped from her home. It was, um, in, I think what people don't understand is if you don't live in Australia and you haven't been to Australia, January in Australia is quite a hot time of year. Uh, you know, it's their summer and these kids, or Louise, would have been on her summer holidays at that point. I think she had about two weeks left of her summer holidays and the parents have had plans to do this, that and the other with them, swimming and picnics and stuff. But on the 4th of January, 1983, her mum and dad and her little sister was having a great day, um, it, just a normal day. There was nothing abnormal about it, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Um, for Christmas, Louise had just got these pyjamas she didn't really like these pyjamas much because the tag really affected her. You know, it was itchy. So her mum cut the tag out of the top of these pyjamas and she didn't like to wear the bottom part. It was like shorts uh, with elastic legs and she didn't like that. So on this night, she wore the pyjama top to bed and her mother and everything said goodnight, tucked the kids in as they always did. And as I said, it was a very warm night. And in Australia, more... So now they have screens, which are security screens. But in 1983, even the screens that I had in my home in Australia was just bugs for bugs to stop the bugs getting in. So if you open the window, literally, it was like a netting that went over the screen. It wasn't a security screen at all. And that's what they had on this house and they'd had for many, many years. Everyone in Australia at that point had these same sort of screens on their windows. Now, this was what they call a low-level home. So it wasn't a double-storey property. It was a low-level home. So 
um, Louise's bedroom faced out onto the front. We had a long driveway, you can see by the pictures, you know, a long driveway and um, her bedroom faced onto the front garden. So on the 4th of January, at about nine-ish, um, the kids went to bed and the mum and dad done what they had to do and everything, just a normal night. As I said, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, and then they went to bed, half 11 sort of time, 12-ish time, to start the day again with these kids because they'd planned to do things with these kids, um, Louise and her sister. And I think everything seemed normal. That was it. But on the 5th of January, this child was missing from her bed. The screen had been cut from the outside. Now don't forget, Louise and her sister shared a bedroom. Their beds were apart the window and then on either side of that window was the beds. The youngest child wasn't touched. Louise was 10 years old at the time of her abduction from this home in the middle of the night on the early hours of the 4th to 5th of January she had been taken from her bed. A 10-year-old. No one heard a thing. When they went in there the next morning, this child was gone. So of course now you have a massive investigation starting because a 10-year-old child wouldn't run away. They did look at all these different things, but it was quite clear from the beginning because of the screen, there was footprints also outside the windows and stuff they knew that this child had been abducted. So of course, you know, Adelaide Police, they started this massive search now, house to house, talking to people, no one saw anything at this point anywhere. They'd checked everything. This child had just gone without a trace, literally, in the middle of the night, in the dead of the night. This child, 10-year-old, for some reason, didn't scream, she certainly probably didn't know what hit her, to tell you the truth, when this person came into this house and took her. But no one saw anything. There was no evidence at all in this case, nothing. So really, as the weeks went on, and it was about two weeks later, um, two or three weeks, I think it was, after Louise's abduction, um, the abductor, right, phoned a sort of a neighbour in the same street was where Louise was taken. And her name was Kathleen Smith, and she lived really, you know, quite near the Bells. And he asked about this abductor, about medical advice for Louise to this neighbour. And he told her where to find Louise's earrings, as to say, I've got this child, here's the proof, go and find it, and um, then you'll know really what's happened to this child. Now this, this phone call was quite bad really for this neighbor because as he's asking and telling her that this child needs medical assistance, and he said because of the abuse and the attack, that he caused on Louise. You can imagine this neighbor was distraught, was distraught. So she immediately rang the police and they did find their earrings. That's when they knew that Louise Bell had been abducted from that bedroom by a predator who had 
harmed her in a very serious way, life-threatening way. And that's sort of what he told the neighbour on the phone. So when we look at this case, right, and you think about a predator that one, would come into your home and take your child from their bed and then ring a neighbour to reinforce your knowledge of what's happened to your child and even leave her earrings where they can be found just to make sure that you know he's telling the truth. This family must have been feeling the what I just can't explain how this family would have been feeling at this time. But this wasn't the end, you see, of this predator's game playing with the police and the family and the community at large here. Because five weeks later, he left Louise's pyjama top neatly folded on Mrs Smith's front lawn. The same neighbour. He's left the pyjama top on the front lawn, neatly folded. Now, the pyjama top was analysed and it was the pyjama top. They could tell it was this beautiful little pyjama top of this young girl because the tag had been taken out, cut out, as the mother had stated, because Louise didn't like that feeling that it made her itch on the back of her neck. It was also cut, I think, at the back, making it look like that it was took off while this child was tied up. It wasn't just removed. There was um, lots of different stuff on this. Um, pajama top like DNA and stuff but don't forget we're talking about 1983 now wasn't around was it and these predators didn't think that by leaving DNA and stuff like that then that they would be caught many years later so they had uh, had this pajama top and they'd really looked after it they really kept it well it was put out to the public and stuff, but I think the neighbour said that she did see someone standing, a man standing around the corner, couldn't see his face, only his feet, just to make sure that she had found that pyjama top. So now we do have this predator, don't we, that is playing games with the police, but now we still don't have this child. Now the police know, and the family know probably, that this child is dead. It, that, that would have been it, because of the way he described how she needed medical assistance and what he'd done to her. There was no way that this child would have survived that. So when this pyjama top was found and analysed for, for the techniques they had in them days in 1983, there was algae found on it and there was soil samples also found on the pyjama top. This led police to this um, estuary area of uh, Norlunga, um, but no trace of the girl was found. But what it did do is um, this paedophile, Raymond uh, John Giese, was convicted of the crime despite nobody being found. Now, the reason he was convicted and later acquitted after this investigation, because he was a paedophile, he was a sex offender that lived about 500 metres away from Louise Bell's house at the time. So their theory was that he had watched her because whoever took this child had watched this child or this family. They knew their routine. They knew how easy it is to break into these houses, to tell the truth as well. And I think, yes, he would have been your prime suspect. He was already on the sex offenders register 
as a paedophile. Uh, he had done quite a few uh, crimes and stuff. Plus, he was known to frequent this area, this estuary area, this river area. And that was the sort of stuff that was found on the pajama top. But what you have to think is, is that now we call it isotopes, don't we? When we look at different bodies of water, they've got like their own DNA and we have, you know, soil samples and we have, you know, sand samples and all this sort of stuff. But many, many people that lived in this area went to that place. So he was really acquitted actually on appeal. However, following the evidence of the DNA testing done um, in Netherlands, it's a low copy DNA testing was done. Um, and this comes later in the case because this is how they get the real killer here. So this uh, Raymond was acquitted of all charges really on that because he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So this case then go, goes cold for many, many years. So Louise Bell went missing around the 5th of January, full, early hours of you know, the 5th of January, 1983. And Michael Black went missing on the 18th of January, 1989, a few years apart. So Michael left his home in Murray Bridge at about 10, about 1 p.m., sorry, on the day to go fishing. So he rode his bike and he took with him his fishing rod, a canvas bag. He was wearing a red and blue striped cotton shirt, shorts, underpants, and blue thongs. Well, blue thongs, thongs meaning shoes in Australia. Uh, he did not take a swim shorts with him, so it's possibly, it was possibly thought unlikely that he'd gone into this river to where he was going fishing. He had no towel and he was accompanied by a family dog and he arrived at uh, Stuart uh, Reserve between 1pm and 1.30pm, probably closer to 1.30pm. So they're the sort of outline of this young lad, right, this young lad. Um, and that was really, when you have a look at this case, a lot of people have thought that this young lad had fallen into the river and drowned, right? That's what they really thought. But as this case goes on, you'll see really how it all fits together. This reserve uh, is on the same side as the Murray River and um, as the town. So the reserve consists of an area of lawn running to the bank of the river. So you've got the lawn and this is where a lot of people go fishing. Barbecues, facilities with kiosks and to serve refreshments. So this is telling you also that this is a public place. He hasn't gone to an isolated area to go fishing. He's gone to a public place where there's people about, lawned areas, kiosks to get food and refreshment, other people probably fishing, people using this as a barbecue area. This is an area that is really well used, open to the public, not where you would think a child would go missing from. So Michael was seen by many, many people because of this area as it was, and also the description about what he was wearing and everything else. But when these people were really asked about this, it was about three years later, really, when these had to remember these details, but no one actually spoke to him. So the time they think he was last seen at this reserve was around uh, 3 p.m. That was the last sort of sighting of him. After that, um, 
he was never seen again. So now we have a child now missing. Assumed really that he had fallen in or swam in the river and the rivers took him. Because all the items that Michael had on him that day, his bike propped up against his tree or this fencing, neatly packed fishing stuff there, this canvas bag neatly there. And what really enforced this feeling that he'd gone in the river was up the river a, a, a little bit, in the reeds of the river, his shirt was found. So that reinforced then the belief that he had fallen in this river and drowned. That's really what the conclusion was then. Because everything was left neatly, there was no struggle, there was no fishing rod just left, he packed it away as if to make it look like he'd gone for a swim. And this t-shirt found, or shirt found, a little way up the river in the reeds. Really clever, wasn't he, this killer? So now the police are searching the rivers, they're doing, you know, um, deep dives of this river, they're trying to find out, you know, find this body of this child. Because even if you assume someone's drowned, you really want to get their body back, don't you? And so the police done extensive searching of this river and they found nothing at all, nothing. But don't forget, you still have this family dog, you know, running up and down, This because this dog's just been left, isn't it? I think what really made this search of this river important, because it states that over the period of 24 years, there had been 137 operations conducted to recover bodies from the inland waters of South Australia. And only on one occasion, there had been a failure to discover the body. And um, that was in flood conditions. As the water goes back, um, then it would take the body out further. So really, his body should have been found. So there was, I think, I think people sort of didn't always believe it. I think they thought, well, everyone else has been found, you know, apart from that, there was no flood conditions at that time, there was nothing at that time that that body shouldn't have been found, it should have been found. Um, and uh, because they had proof that most bodies, or all, nearly all bodies, apart from the one in the flood, wasn't found. So I think there was suspicions, but because there was no other evidence really of that, um, that was the conclusion at that point on that he was probably drowned in this river. So when we're talking about when you drowned, okay, and the um, pathologists have stated this, is that when a person's drowned, uh, the body will sink to the bottom because it feels that the air, you know, it sinks to the bottom, usually, unless there's, you know, massive currents that's gonna take you away, and there wasn't in this body of water at that point. It would have sunk to the bottom for at least two to three days and then it would have, after two to three days, then it would have rose to the surface and floated. So even if they hadn't found it on the bottom, sooner or later that body would have come to the surface and either, you know, been seen there or been moved along but on top of the water. So really a lot, and especially when it gets to coal, this is what made the jury believe that this man that did this, did it. I want to make it quite clear, really, with, with this case, especially in Michael Black's case, 
the searching, whether it was sea, land, you know, by the police, by the, by the public, by um, different agencies that would look for this lad, went on for three years without success. That's how much they didn't believe, I think, that he had drowned, to still continue to search for this boy for three years. They needed that body, they needed something. And unfortunately, Michael Black has never been found to this day. So now we come to this young lad, 1989 this was. We've now had two children in this sort of area going missing. No bodies, no evidence has ever been found. Still looking, really, for this boy and this young girl to this day. So in 1989, a 13-year-old boy was abducted and sexually assaulted. He was taken to a property, tied up, abused, raped, and left, really, because the perpetrator hadn't finished with him yet. When he came back, he was going to do more to him. But this lad, this 13-year-old that can't be named, fought, you see, untied himself, escaped, run to the neighbours, banging on the door, help me. They rang the police straight away. And that's when all this case really starts to come together. Because this one young lad, this 13-year-old boy, escaped a serial killer, really escaped him. I mean, how lucky for him that he did, because his fate would have been the same as Louise Bell and Michael Black. It would have been. But he had to leave him. You see, the perpetrator had to leave because, you see, he had a job, this man. He had a job. He was a teacher. He was a teacher. But as he had to go to work and leave this lad, this lad escaped. And that's when this case then broke. That was it. It was all out there now. Because don't forget, even from Louise Bell's case, there is DNA. And as well, we're moving up to, you know, 1989, 1990 times. DNA is coming into its own, isn't it? So this man now that was arrested because of the abduction and rape of a 13-year-old boy, then, you know, from his home where he tied him up and this boy escaped, and this was Dieter Fennin. He was, at that point, I think, in his 30s, this, this man. He had, he is a prolific killer. He is a predator of children, this man, and he is a teacher. So this Dieter Fennin, this predator, evil man he was. He owned a property, and when you look at the land title records, um, in Holly Rise, I think it was, um, in Hackman, um, from 1977 until the day he was taken into custody for Michael's murder. Because as now things come out from the case of that, there is DNA, there is different stuff. So with um, Dieter Fennin and Michael Black, because don't forget, he wouldn't admit to anything, this man, they very rarely do, do they? 
but it was about, he owned a van that was seen in that area, that location. And then he said himself that he had spoken to Michael Black on that day about his fishing stuff, but that was the last he'd seen of him. So he incriminated himself actually in that instance by saying that he had seen and he was in that area of that time with Michael Black. Because what they believe happened to Michael Black was that Lenin probably approached him in some way, come to the van, do this, because they're talking about fishing, this stuff. You know, kids, you know, very young, 11-year-old, they're very young. Um, they're a bit, you know, very naive to these predators. And you are talking about in an open space, aren't we? As I've said before, where there was plenty of people around barbecuing this, that and the other was going on. So Michael would have felt quite safe going up this van. It turns out that it looks like he was pulled into that van, really, and um, silenced quite quickly, to tell you the truth. It's probably likely he was also taken back then to that home um, of Dieter Fenning and there he would have been uh, abused terribly um, as he had tried to, or he had done to the young lad that escaped and there killed in that property and also then dumped somewhere else um, which and his body has never been found. I think the minute they knew that they're now looking because they have the evidence from Louise Bell's case, the pyjamas, the DNA evidence on there. But he wouldn't really admit anything, this, this, this Fenning, he just wouldn't. He continued to try to blame other people for that, especially the one that had been, uh, you know, acquitted of the murder, because he said the DNA evidence and stuff didn't match. And also, because the evidence that was used to gain the conviction for Michael Black and Louise Bell was on evidence that was from the boy's abduction, the first, you know, the third young lad's abduction and murder, uh, and, and attempted murder on that child, and he escaped. So they put this evidence in, which is a very risky thing to do. So when we're talking about a man that is, they are trying to now pin murders on because they know he's done them. They know he's done them. And they're trying to bring in evidence into the court and they're called similar fact, ev similar fact evidence. Now, with that, when you have a case for Michael Black and Louise Bell that are similar if you're looking at the abduction of the boy because they know now from DNA and stuff and also what I call isotopes and all this stuff on the pyjama top that he was there. Dieter Fenning also had said that he was somewhere else at that time caravanning with his wife and children um, but it turns out that he wasn't, he lied about that and it was turned out that the caravan holiday ended on the 4th so he was back in this area to abduct uh, Louise Bell from that property um, on the 5th of January. He literally had driv driven back from a caravan holiday with his family, abducted a child, abducted this child from her home and killed her and dumped her body, literally before the wife and the kids come back. 
Now, his wife actually did say that they were on a caravan holiday at that point. Now, whether she got the days wrong or the dates wrong, it's, you know, unclear. But it was found out by evidence and by the police is really, you know, looking into this case and going over every detail of this case up to where this man was at the time of Louise's Bell murder. He was in that same town, only a little distance apart, really. It's probably thought that he had walked through some sort of, not alleyways as such, but some areas that he wouldn't have been noticed and when he abducted um, and cut through that, you know, um, screen to abduct her from her bedroom. And then he would have took her back, probably with a car waiting, probably not so far away from her home, took her somewhere else and murdered her, really. That's what they believe happened to Louise Bell on that night. And they do believe, and the evidence shows, that Dieter Fennin did kill her. So we have to think now that when we have this young child missing, then we have another child missing, like Michael Black, whose circumstances are similar, really. You have a child that's just disappeared, and we have now uh, Dieter Fennin in this area of this child's disappearance at that time. His fan was seen there. Um, he's also admitted himself that he was in this area and he did speak to Michael Black. So now we have all these um, different evidence parts coming in, don't we? Plus now we have a child of 13 year old that he has abducted, he has taken back to his home, he has abused, left tied up, for later to come back and that child would have probably had the same fate. So this similar evidence now has to be brought in because we have a survivor, don't we, now in the 13-year-old child. And that evidence from that child has to be brought in in relation to what could have happened to these other two victims of these children. Now this sort of evidence is hard to be relied upon because it is similar in fact, but we're talking about different cases, but in this case that was allowed in, therefore allowing the jury to hear about all the cases combined. So Fennin did um, admit to the abduction um, of that young lad and to the abuse of that young lad. He never admitted to the murders of Michael Black or of Louise Bell, but he was found guilty. Listen, this man even went on to an appeal, you know, to do this, to say that the evidence they had. Now, when we talk about DNA evidence, and as I said, in 1983, when this Dieter Fennin was cutting this top or, or ripping this top off this child as he was abusing her, his DNA was over that. The DNA from where he owned a property or was on holiday on a property or where he used to go to holiday, um, the, like the, you know, the estuary, the algae in the estuary, or the isotopes, if you want to call it like that. You know, the sand, the soil samples was related to him as well. But the difference is his DNA was on that top. So they knew the only way that his DNA could have been on that top of Louise Bell, that pajama top, that beautiful little pajama top, that of this young girl that was murdered horrifically by this man. And we know it was horrific because he rung the neighbor within two weeks and he told her, didn't he? what he'd done, that this girl needed medical attention, that this girl needed help because of what I've done to her. You know, life-threatening injuries, 
in detail what he said to this woman. That's now why this man was convicted of all these murders. Listen, Louise Bell and Michael Black's body has never, ever been found. Uh, never. He knows where they are. And I think the reason he won't stay, he said to prisoners that Michael Black and Louise Bell are together, buried together in this certain area, but he won't say why. I think the reason he won't say why is because this man is a serial killer. Now, I do not believe that Louise Bell was his first victim. I do not. I think there's many, many more victims out there and children that have gone missing and been murdered at the hands of this man, this Dieter Fenning. Usually killers like to have certain dump sites where they can go back to and relive what they've done to these children or to their victims. I believe there's more than Michael Black and Louise Bell in this area. And if we can find this area, then we're probably going to find many, many more um, victims of Dieter Fenning. This case is strange because it, it's um, a really sad one, really, because it took years, right? Louise Bell's was a cold case for many, many years until, really, the abduction of that young lad. These predators always seem to make a mistake sooner or later. Luckily, this man was taken off the streets because this man would have continued and continued and continued to kill. This father, this married man, this teacher, this serial killer, a child predator was out in them streets for many, many years, many, many years doing this. And I'm glad that the court in Australia and on appeal as he's tried to say, you can't use DNA evidence against me. Well, <laughs> you know, he's, all his appeals have been rejected, absolutely rejected, because this man is a killer of the worst kind someone that would enter your home and take your children from their own beds and then play the games and do things that but in the end you see it was that game playing wasn't it that got him caught because if he hadn't have left the earrings with the dna on if he hadn't have left the pajama top with the dna on to taunt the family to play games with the police to say look what i've done that's what he was trying to say look I've hurt this child, this is me, playing games. If he hadn't have done that, this man probably would have never have been caught. So sometimes these serial killers, don't they, think they're clever. They're not that clever, really. And I think when we talk about DNA, I always say you can't beat DNA. But that one vital clue, wasn't it, really? And these the years it took for this DNA and advancements in DNA really testing. Um, this low copy technique, as I spoke about earlier, would allegedly yield this one in a billion, one in a billion match to the convicted paedophile, Dieter Benning. One in a billion. You know, and I always say you should knock DNA. You can't beat it. And as we become more and more advanced in DNA and also in isotopes and in water, bodies of water, and because her pyjama top was soaked in water, so that had that sort of DNA on it as well, you can tell where 
a child or where a victim has been from or where they've been dumped or what's happened to them by clothing that's been left or soaked in water and stuff in these bodies of water around the world. Every body of water has really its own signature, its DNA signature, these isotopes, which you as the perpetrator would still have on you. Uh, in some point, maybe in your car or wherever. These are on this pajama top. And there was also other DNA testing on that, which made it so clear that this man murdered Louise Bell. So no matter what he says, how long he tries to plead he's innocent, this man is so guilty and not just guilty of all their murders and many, many more. So uh, Dieter Fenning was given a non-parole period of 35 years for the crimes that he committed. Um, he was um, already serving a non-parole term um, for more than three decades for the murder of South Australian boy Michael Black. So he was um, prosecuted for that one first and also not only for that case but also for the raping of the teenager, the boy that escaped. So he was already serving time then. As the police continued with this cold case of, of Louise Bells to open up and, and stuff, that's when they gathered these new um, DNA techniques, really technology advancement of DNA that really ended the case of all these children, apart from nobodies. I mean, this man is never ever going to give up where their bodies are, and I've said this before because I believe that he has a site you know, a burial site which he would have liked to have gone back to on probably occasions and that would have been his place. So if I was looking for somewhere where these children were buried, it would be somewhere that he would have frequented quite a lot or somewhere he didn't have to drive too far from. Many of these killers like to go back and sit sometimes even on top of the graves or where they buried them, but in this area. Usually bring their family back there, this sort of stuff. They like to feel that, you know, all this emotion coming from that kill that they're done, they're remembering it. So if I was looking for these bodies, um, I mean, the problem is Australia and Adelaide's a big place, and this man used to like to go on trips different places. But I think if I was looking, I would be looking for places he specifically went to quite a lot where he wouldn't have to drive out too far he could spend quality time but not always alone I think that he would have took his family and we've had many killers that have done that that have took their families or their girlfriends or whatever back to where these burial sites are so they can relive it and also it's like they've got something over their partners I know that's something you don't and that's where I would look if I was starting to look for these children. Listen, it's been decades since these children went missing. Decades. And it's so unfair, isn't it, for the families to think that these children will never be found. And as the landscape changes, and, you know, in certain parts of Australia there's floods, there's not floods, you know, this changes, makes it more and more difficult to find... Um, bodies really and there are it's a terrible fault but some children will never be found they will never be found and uh, my heart goes out to these families to these children really listen this has been the case of Louise Bell Michael Black and the other little young lad really that had a terrible time here this young lad but without his bravery 
to escape this killer. This killer would have continued on and more and more children would have been murdered. So thank you for watching. Until the next time. Bye-bye.